This episode of Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays, our weekly digital speaker series. Our last episode of Device Talks Tuesdays is this Tuesday, December 15th at 4 p.m. It's brought to you by our friends at Implexer. The topic is AI and the global customer experience, a digital revolution in life sciences. This is a great panel assembled with leaders from LifeScan, WellDoc, and other companies. Please do join us. Go to devicetalks.com to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Director of Device Talk. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Welcome back to our listeners. Welcome to uh, new listeners who may be joining us this week. The Device Talks Weekly Podcast is the weekly program associated with the Device Talks meetings and a very close cousin to Mass Device and Medical Design and Outsourcing, two of the leading editorial vehicles in MedTech. Normally, I'm here with my partner, Chris. Newmarker. He's the executive editor of Mass Device. Chris is on vacation this week. So I will be joined by Nancy Crotty, managing editor of Metal Design and Outsourcing, and Sean Hooley, assistant editor of Mass Device. But before I bring Nancy and Sean in, wanted to uh, ask you to please subscribe to this podcast. We're going to uh, have a slightly irregular schedule over the next few weeks with the holidays coming. We will have a podcast next week. We will not have a, a podcast the week after that and we'll likely have one the final week of the year. So uh, we're going to be back in full force in January. And quite frankly, if you subscribe, you will not miss an episode. And I advise you not to miss any episodes because we have some great stuff coming up, including today's interview with Kevin Lobo, the CEO of Stryker. Now it's time to bring in Nancy Crotty, Managing Editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing, and Sean Hooley, Assistant Editor of Mass Device. Nancy and Sean, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This is your first time on the podcast, Nancy, so I think it's a good opportunity for you to uh, just introduce yourself to, uh, to our listeners. When did you become Managing Editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing? I became managing editor in November of 2019, and that was after about 18 months of uh, working as a contractor with the company. But I've been covering medical devices for about six or seven years. So this week's uh, interview on the podcast is with Kevin Lobo of Stryker. Kevin will be one of the, the folks featured in our upcoming issue of Medical Design and Outsourcing. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, about the January issue. It's kind of a special one. It is. Uh, it's our leadership issue. And every year we, uh, we do our best to find pivotal figures in the industry to uh, write about, to profile and talk about not just, you know, who they are and how they came to be where they're at, but what sorts of challenges they've faced and how did they, how did they meet those challenges? And to also include some information from people who know them and who can talk about who they really are, what they're really like, and uh, and get some insights from the these leaders about where they think the industry is going and where their companies are going. And uh, it should be interesting because, you know, given what 2020 has been, especially, you know, for, for different segments 
of the medical device industry. We should have some interesting reading ahead of us. And that's going to be a feature of uh, of the uh, conversation I had with, with Kevin. I mean, it's been quite a year with not only, you've had really three kind of once in a lifetime or once in a career events between the pandemic and then uh, the, 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 the unrest that followed the killing of George Floyd. And then of course, this election has been one to remember. So it uh, should be a great issue. Or right, before we get into this week's New Markers Newsmakers, wanted to uh, share a little fact about one of our, our guest co-hosts. Uh, they were served a steak by now President-elect Joe Biden. So our listeners can take a moment and guess whether it was Sean Hooley, assistant editor of Mass Device, or Nancy Crotty, managing editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing. And if you guessed Nancy Crotty, you were correct. <laughs> Nancy, how did you come to be served a steak by the now president-elect Joe Biden? I was a cub reporter at the Delaware State News in Dover, Delaware, in the summer of 1987. And Joe had asked a bunch of editors and reporters in Delaware, and there are there aren't too many because Delaware is a tiny state, um, <laughs> to come to his house, the same one he still lives in, in northern Delaware, outside of Wilmington, and uh, have a barbecue. And so I went with uh, a couple of editors and um, hung out at Joe's house. And he did indeed not just serve us, but cook us steaks. Wow. I know, on the deck. You know, being a much younger person at the time, I uh, kind of thought it was endless. (laughs) I couldn't wait. (laughs) You thought you'd be cooked steak all the time by by senators every. every... (laughs) No, no, just the conversation. The conversation was. Yeah, at the time we were like, yeah, yeah. I mean, because Delaware is so small, yeah. And if you're a reporter there, you know all the officials, and it's like, oh, sure, okay, let's just go and you know have a barbecue at Joe Biden's, and hopefully it'll be over soon. <laughs> <laughs> Little did we know. How was the steak? Was was does he know his way around the barbecue? He does. Yeah, he was very relaxed. He was very personable, and uh, and he can he can cook. That's great. And Sean, you had the steak uh, cooked by Elizabeth Warren. Is that correct? <laughs> if only. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Keep working at it. All right. Now is the time for uh, for this episode's New Markers Newsmakers. Chris is not here, so I won't uh, I won't try to get by with any theme music. But we do have lots of news from Mass Device. So Sean Hooley, assistant editor of Mass Device, what is number five on the uh, the biggest news of the week per Mass Device? Number five on Mass Device is the FDA emergency use authorization for a COVID-19 and flu combination diagnostic from Quest Diagnostics. These have sort of started to become, you know, we were so used to just getting the COVID-19 tests because for so long that was the what everyone was looking for to increase testing capacity. And now as flu season is in full stride, they're looking for ways to kind of differentiate between the two while uh, testing all at once. Lots of COVID news this week, of course. We've got the, uh, it's today, Thursday when we're recording this, and we're all sort of keeping one eye open on the Twitter feed for, for news from the FDA review of the of the Pfizer vaccine. But kind of leads us, I guess, into number four. Did I steal your thunder? What's number right. four? <laughs> Sean number Hooley. four is uh, from the other day when the FDA put out a briefing ahead of the advisory meeting that uh, said that Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine candidate meets the success criteria that the FDA has laid out for potential authorization. Obviously, that didn't necessarily mean it's authorized because they have this advisory meeting and more decisions will come. But uh, that was sort of a it, it seems to have the FDA's backing ahead of the crucial meetings that will decide if uh, 
it'll start getting distributed to the American public. That's great. Well, well, certainly everyone is watching that. All right. Well, number three involves uh, Nancy Crotty's best friend and uh, and master barbecue chef. What's number three on the uh, on the list, Chris? Uh, oh, Chris! <laughs> I called you, Chris. Sean, I miss him so much. You. I'm sorry. What's number three? Go ahead. I was going to say barbecue pitmaster Joe Biden <laughs> makes uh, his picks for Health and Human Services Secretary and CDC Director. So uh, he's obviously been sort of laying out his plans ahead of what we assume will be an inauguration in January. And uh, there's uh, he chose California Attorney General Xavier Becerra as his nominee for HHS Secretary and local for Massachusetts uh, Mass General Hospital Chief of Infectious Diseases, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who is an HIV slash AIDS expert uh, as the CDC director, nominee for CDC director. Uh, Still, though, we have not heard if he is selected a nominee for FDA commissioner. So that's kind of the big one in the healthcare space anyway that we're waiting for. Absolutely. And there's a certain poetry to this. Uh, I almost did it again, Sean. (laughs) Number two involves uh, another Boston institution. That's right. Boston Scientific announced that it received FDA approval for its WaveRider Alpha spinal cord stimulator systems. So it's a portfolio of SCS systems with MRI conditional Bluetooth enabled implantable pulse generators to cover multiple areas of pain, the company said. It's already launched in Europe after it gained CE mark approval for managing chronic intractable pain and peripheral nerve stimulation of the trunk for pain management. So it's just another uh, innovation from Boston Scientific that's now available in the U.S. That's great news. All right. And number one, we'll be turning back to uh, to Nancy Crotty. Nancy, this was your story. What's number one on the New Markers Newsmakers list? Number one is that an appeals court in Indiana um, upheld a $112 million jury award against Medtronic and in favor of a spine surgeon from Indiana who was suing for royalties for a device that he had invented and uh, for which he had a, a deal with Medtronic. They had already paid him $23 million in royalties before he filed suit several years ago. Nope, 2013, uh, saying that they shorted him on the royalties deal. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a cervical bind system that he helped develop. And Medtronic, when I uh, talked with them, they said they're disappointed with the decision and that they plan to uh, appeal it to the Indiana Supreme Court. So we'll see how that goes. All right. We'll keep track of that. Excellent. All right. Well, that's a great, uh, great number five. Great job by both of you. And uh, now it's time to uh, get into our keynote conversation with Kevin Lobo, the CEO of Stryker. Hey, everyone. It's Tom. We're going to get a little meta before we get into our conversation with Kevin Lobo of Stryker. We're going to talk about a podcast within a podcast. Our friends at Delve have a podcast of their own. It's focused on innovation inside and outside of medtech it's called delve talks and in this clip of the two minute detox president dave franchino will tell you what delve is trying to do through its podcast who they talk to and why you should listen. Yeah, we've really enjoyed the opportunity to have a really intimate conversation with a broad range of leaders who are all focused on innovation. And sort of the centroid, the underpinnings of that was on creating a culture of innovation. It's really something that we're focused on at Delve and how do we create not just an organization which can deliver innovative new designs, but how do we create a culture which is often challenging itself to be innovative? I, I think anyone who works in this field would agree 
agree that creating and managing a culture that that fosters creativity and innovation is one of the biggest challenges we all face. So that that has been the focal point of the challenge is bringing in leaders from a broad range of organizations, from medical device, from transportation, from healthcare, from consumer products, innovators, and asking them a series of questions, which all revolve on how do you create a culture of innovation for individuals that are charged with trying to invent new futures. Taking a slightly different spin on it this year in terms of the pandemic has impacted how companies are innovating. So we still have that same basic focus, focusing on a culture of innovation, but really trying to address in conversations the unique challenges of doing that in a world where we socially distanced, we're working from home, we don't have some of the tools and techniques, the rapid prototyping techniques, and we've been forced to collaborate from afar. But it's really been an enjoyable opportunity to sit back and reflect on the unique challenges and opportunities that those of us who manage creative individuals, creative staff, and are, are charged with inventing new futures experience. And I really would encourage your listeners to check it out. We've had some really fun conversations. Thanks, Dave Francino, for sharing your story and Delve's story through the Two Minute Detox channel. If you'd like to find Delve's podcast, go to delve.com. That's D-E-L-V-E.com. Go to the Insights tab and you can find Delve Talks there. Thanks for listening to Delve's story through the Two Minute Detox. If you'd like to tell your own story, please reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'll get you in touch with the right folks. Now, let us hear from Kevin Lobo, the CEO of Stryker. Kevin Lobo, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be with you. So this is a conversation about leadership, and I feel like for, for, for leaders like yourself, that this has been sort of a year where you've had three or four, maybe 100-year storms. <laughs> so we can sort of take them in sequential order, and I'd love to understand how you as CEO of Stryker reacted to each of them and how your company reacted to each of them. So starting at the beginning, uh, the pandemic, CEOs are hired, I think, because of their experiences in dealing with problems. So if this is a, a problem, at least in the US, that we haven't really dealt with before. I wonder at the, in the initial stages, what did you draw upon? What experience did you draw upon to work, work with your team and to figure out a direction for Stryker at this time when no one really knew what the right course was? All crises have similarities because a crisis, now obviously the magnitude of this crisis is unprecedented and I had never been through anything like this, but I'd been through other business crises uh, before. Uh, a business in the UK that I was leading, a chemical business that was losing money and that had to be restructured pretty uh, drastically. And so whenever you're in a time of crisis, I think calm and clear priorities is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And so with our teams, we came up with our three priorities very quickly, which was protect our employees, serve our customers, and have strong financial discipline. And, and the reason for the financial discipline is clearly we didn't know how long it was going to last. And we had to make sure that we could keep uh, our employees employed for as long as possible, mm -hmm. potentially having to do furloughs. But I think those three priorities, we, which we came out with right away, and that was very repetitive throughout the entire time. And even now, that's still, you know, those three priorities still resonate with all of our employees. So I think being clear on those priorities and what's important, what matters what is the company and leadership putting at the top of the agenda? I think that was very important. Even the notion of serving customers. So there were many of our divisions who continued to serve customers throughout the pandemic, whether they're in trauma or stroke cases. And so making sure that they were safe and making sure they knew that we were expecting them to continue to serve their customers it provided clarity 
And I think that's the most important thing is to have that, that clarity uh, through the organization of what's important, what matters to us. And, and, and that gave them a sense of confidence as well. You, you mentioned the, the, the common traits of, of crises. Um, what are they? What, what, are the, what are the qualifications? Is it, just, is it just uncertainty? The only certainty is uncertainty? What, what felt familiar to you? Uh, what felt familiar to me was where people, people were nervous. And when people are nervous, you have to communicate probably 20 times more than you normally would communicate. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true in any kind of crises. And so in this case, we did, I did weekly broadcasts, employee broadcasts to all of our employees. And we did leader calls every week for at the beginning with roughly 200 employees. And, and that, then that moved to bi-weekly after that. And now it's more on, on a monthly basis. But those frequent communications were really important. And to, to each week saying what's changed, what's new, what new information do we have, what's happening in different regions. And we're now setting up a process to determine when you can come back to work, making PPE available to our employees, many of whom had to either go in to manufacture products or support their customers. The, the, the flurry of questions that existed were, were incredible at the beginning of this pandemic. And I think just creating that forum to communicate proactively and with intense frequency, mm-hmm. but also creating, we, we created what was called incident response teams so that in local areas, people knew who to call if they had a question about, should I go to the office? Can I go to the office? In many cases, there were stay-at-home orders that governments were instituting, and we had to provide them letters to prove to them that they were, we were an essential employer and that they could show the police if they were stopped going, <laughs> going to work. Uh, so those types of things, there were literally hundreds of these examples, but I think that the communication aspect was something I'd learned previously. And you just cannot uh, over-communicate when you're in a, in a situation that's very foreign and, and, and it's not normal. They want to see from leaders and they want to hear from leaders. Did you feel comfortable? Sh- I don't know. Did you feel nervous? And if you are nervous, do you feel comfortable sharing that with employees or do you have to demonstrate position of confidence, strength and knowledge? No, I think you have to be transparent. Employees yeah. are, are, very, uh, are very savvy. So you just have to be authentic. You have to be transparent. And, and I did say at the beginning, look, we're, we're going to try not to have any layoffs. I can't guarantee it because I really don't know how long this will last, but that's going to be our, our goal. And, and we, for the entire month of April, we kept all of our production workers on staff, even though they weren't working uh, on salary, because we didn't want them to have to go into the unemployment lines when, where that, that was a chance for them to contract the virus also, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, because as you know, the phone lines weren't working. And so that was pretty unsafe. So we actually extended the period of time before we started the furloughs, uh, until the month of May. And then even then the furloughs were, were not very long in duration, fortunately, because things came back pretty quickly and we were able to bring back our employees. But I think you, you have to be honest and you have to be transparent and, and I think that resonated very well with employees. So it's not about a rah-rah. It's about here's the state of where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what we can do. Let's control the things we can control. And we're financially strong, so we're not in a, in a bad position. Uh, but we'll see, have to see how this evolves. And just keeping, keeping them posted throughout that period. I'm an optimistic person by nature. So normally when I talk to employees, I, I tend to see the positive sides of things. But you mm-hmm. don't sugarcoat things. You, you have to be realistic about the challenges, the fact that our business was declining, and which did, which is very significant in the second quarter, we our business has, uh, declined by twenty five percent in revenue. Mm-hmm. That's something we've never experienced before uh, as a company. <laughs> uh, and so you have to be honest with people about what the challenges are, and and then also 
take advantage of the opportunity to highlight things that are, are happening. So we had customers come and tell us on the leader calls, tell us what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And we had salespeople talk about their experiences. So there were a lot of inspirational hero stories that were occurring. So we sort of balanced the negatives with these positive stories of, of inspiring stories and, and what customers were looking for from us. And, and hearing from customers directly, uh, our, our leaders said, was, uh, was really powerful. Your performance, your company performance is, has, uh, has recovered nicely. Uh, the, the, the sector has, has as well. Is that the result of those internal steps that you took? Or is that the result of the external situation just normalizing a, a bit, although not obviously completely? I think it's more the, the situation normalizing. The environment normalizing has been the bigger contributor. Uh, I think we've come back very well. I'm really pleased. Our third quarter was excellent. And so I think we went into the pandemic from a position of strength. We had a terrific January and February of revenue. As you've seen over the past eight years, we've been growing above the market rates. Uh, we have strong businesses, strong leaders. And so we were well positioned going into it. And I think that's we drew upon that strength coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're going to continue to outperform the market, but in a similar way as we were prior to the pandemic. But the biggest contributor has been the market getting let's call it more normalized. It's certainly not normal, but it's, but it's at least the procedures, the elective procedures, which has really hurt us. Uh, having those come back uh, to, to a healthier level has certainly been the bigger contributor. And, and we start, and just to slip into business for a second, we, we, I spoke with Spencer Stiles a few weeks ago, and we talked about Mako and how you've been able to to maintain sales. I mean, Mako would seem to be one of those products that would have been maybe the, I don't want to say it's a luxury, but but it's one of those high ticket items that a hospital will be like, we, we can't even have this conversation. Yet you've been able to place them. How what how have you been able to uh, to do that? Yeah, I, I would say I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised because you, you really don't know what happens when you get into an environment like this. Yeah. And uh, large capital has proven to be much more resilient than I would have expected. And Mako in particular, the demand, I think we've sort of hit an inflection point on robotics. If you remember when we did the, the deal, uh, there was a lot of negativity around robotics and orthopedics. And, and that oh, yeah. clearly that story has completely shifted uh, so much so that the, the hospitals are prioritizing purchases of, of Mako in, uh, at the expense of other items that they're, because they have to rationalize their, their budgets. And these you know, the idea of getting into robotics and expanding into robotics, many of our customers are buying their second, third, fourth Mako. And, and that, that resiliency, frankly, was surprising to me, partially because of the government stimulus. And so liquidity hasn't been a huge issue mm-hmm. for hospitals, particularly in the United States. But we saw in the third quarter, uh, it, it's even starting to pick up internationally with, with Mako demand, which did go a little soft in the second quarter. That Even that picked up in the third quarter. And our order book continues to be very strong for Mako. So we're really excited about this being kind of the future, as, as Spencer talked to you about. Uh, this this really is the future. And we're, we've hit an inflection point where they're seeing it as essential uh, to operate a successful orthopedic practice. Mm-hmm. But we're also seeing strength in our medical division. So our beds and our stretchers and our defibrillators, and those are also high ticket uh, items. And those might be more linked to a pandemic tailwind, you could say, as the heightened focus on taking care of patients, having bed capacity, uh, taking care of safety. Uh, you think about the automatic uh, CPR device that we have that keeps the caregiver away from the patient 
which prevents them from contracting the virus. So they're, they're, right. we have some products that had a bit of a tailwind, but we're seeing really healthy demand across our large capital businesses. Well, we're talking about, about leadership and, and the, the point you made about Mako is a great one that at the time, you know, people really questioned you were a new CEO. Uh, it was a big purchase. People wondered what the heck is he doing? What the heck is Stryker doing? And you're right. It was the time I remember debates between robotics versus 3D printing, and it was no one really was quite sure where it was going to fit. Describe your, the decision, the process that went into making that decision to place a very big bet on robotics with the Mako purchase. Yes. Uh, so going back in time, it, it, really what led me to to want to move on the deal was the dissatisfaction that patients had with their knee replacements. As it was well documented in the literature that roughly 25% of patients were dissatisfied with their knee replacement, a much higher satisfaction rate for hip replacement. Uh, and part of the reason was just how the implants are put in. The implants were lasting a long time, but patients didn't feel like it was as normal or as natural and with Mako, you saw they took a hard procedure, a, a uni compartmental procedure. Partial knee replacement is difficult to do, and Mako made it easier to do. And they took 20% of the, of, of the market as a non-orthopedic company over a four or five-year period. And, and so that became pretty intuitively obvious to me that there's some, something here that's making the procedure more consistent, more predictable, more reliable. And th- there was the, our belief that that would translate into total knee. So we always thought of total knee as the killer application uh, for for robotics. And and that was the thesis. And certainly that has played out uh, in spades. Uh, We also put a bet on 3D printing. And so we still have the same knee design, the triathlon knee system, Mm -hmm. uh, which which is a fabulous implant. So the challenge hasn't been with implants. It's been with what we call enabling technologies, which I'm sure Spencer talked about. That is really what helps the the surgeon do a better procedure. And we think that's going to translate into shoulder and spine and other areas. So, but it was a big bet, it, but it wasn't enough to sort of take down the company, right? At the time, it was, <laughs> the time it was 1.6 billion. Um, yeah. Stryker fortunately had a very strong balance sheet. And if we were wrong, it was going to be a niche in the market. Uh, mm-hmm. But if we were right, we were going to be right for decades. And and this was something that we felt uh, had minimal down, downside. Sure, if it if it went wrong, we would have written off half, you know, maybe a billion dollars of goodwill. That doesn't look good. That, uh, you know, that would have been pretty negatively perceived for me personally, but, but, but the upside was so dramatic. And I like doing deals where you, if you want to win, you have to be willing to take risks. Mm-hmm. And I love to do deals that have very, very high upside with a sort of manageable or controllable downside. And that amount of downside, if we had had to write off a billion dollars of goodwill that wouldn't kill the company. Uh, it would hurt the company. It would hurt my reputation. Yeah. But but it's really about trying to to improve outcomes for our customers and for our, and for patients. And that was the lens we looked through. And and obviously that's played out very very well. There were a lot of naysayers, frankly, inside our company. Uh, there were naysayers. My a lot of our surgeon customers were not happy with me. Some of the some of some of those very very loyal striker customers were not happy either. But uh, but it was it was a bet worth taking and, and clearly. You know, right now we can look back and say that uh, with certainty. Do Do you lose any sleep over big risks, big big moves like that? <clears throat> Not really. No. Uh, I think you have to you have to sort of uh, make the bets you think are right. That's what leadership is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've changed our organizational structure. And that was a big change called the transatlantic operating model. That was a big shift for organizations. Helped us become more global. 
I think you, you, you get the information that you need. You involve your team in the decision-making process. You hear sort of the, the arguments on both sides that once you make a decision, you just go. Yeah. I've, I've always been a believer. You just lean in, you go. If you're wrong, you admit you're wrong later and you course correct. But um, no, I don't really lose a lot of sleep about it. Throughout my career, I've always sort of felt like you have to, you have to go for it. Going back to my, my original point about this being three perfect storms, we'll get the next two or the three 100-year storms, we'll get the next two in a moment. I, I, I failed to mention that in addition to being CEO and striker, you're also leading AdvaMed. So you have more of an industry. And so you've had this times two. So you've had six 100-year storms. <laughs> how how ha- from, from your, your, your chair, your, your seat at AdvaMed, the, the, the head of the table, how, have you, how did the med tech industry respond in, in, in your mind to the challenges of the pandemic? Listen, I'm incredibly proud of the medical device industry. I, I really love this industry. As you probably know, I, I only came to the medical device industry in about 2005. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, I was in other industries. And I would say this is uh, just an amazing industry with fantastic leaders. There's a humility uh, across the, the leadership of this industry. And this notion of serving uh, is, is deeply embedded in the industry. So uh, I'm serving out my second year, my two-year term as the uh, chairman of the association, which runs uh, r- runs out in March. And clearly, uh, I wasn't prepared to, to be leading during this time. And uh, I've learned a lot about ventilators and diagnostic tests uh, and PPE in, in areas that, frankly, Stryker doesn't play in. But as a leader of the association, I had to become very knowledgeable uh, but the industries rallied beautifully and, and companies decided to, to, to band together to really figure out how to, how to best inform the government uh, about the availability. And ventilators is a good example. Uh, and diagnostic testing is another one where we now have a registry that we show to the entire government as well as the local, each state can see uh, their, their capacity uh, around tests and what, when they're being delivered to, to be able to do the demand and supply matching. So I think the industry's responded. The, the scale up of, of manufacturing has been incredible, um, be, because you know we had lean supply chains, mm-hmm. very very lean supply chains, which, which was rewarded. Frankly, the notion of having extra capacity and extra inventory was always seen as a negative financially. Uh, but the ability to scale up has been has been dramatic. Uh, it wasn't easy, and, and I would say we took some sometimes some negative press, uh, and we felt sometimes unfairly. Um, but the reality is we responded very, very well. And you don't hear anybody talking about problems with ventilators. Um, the testing is still, a, you know, sometimes a challenge, but even that, you don't hear much about that now. And mm-hmm. we've now moved on to vaccines, which of course is not part of our industry, but we're, we're, we're quite excited about that. But uh, it was incredible. I spent an enormous amount of my time in, in the month of April, really on industry issues, not striker issues, uh, given this unusual time. But, but I, I, I walked away feeling proud of the industry more proud than I was even prior um, to this pandemic. And I, and I think the, uh, our customers realize uh, and, and really appreciate us more than ever uh, as we've gone through this crisis, especially you know, having our employees show up mm-hmm. alongside them. Uh, that, that really has endeared um, our, our service people uh, to our customers. Uh, healthcare professionals, I'm sure, will, will appreciate help wherever they're able to get it. So let's move on to the, the second uh, very unfortunate incident this year, the, the killing of George Floyd. You and I talked about it back in, in June, about how you responded to it and about your efforts within Stryker. And let's just talk about Stryker of, of making sure that, that this was acted on and that change was made. What have the last six, min- six months been like at Stryker? As, as a CEO initially, though, let's, let's just address that. How did you, how did you uh, speak to your, your, 
your employees about it? How did you decide that you that Striker, not just you alone, leadership, but how do you decide that Striker had to have a role in, in a solution? Take me back, I guess, to those first few days. Yeah, so diversity and inclusion, and, and now we call it diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, has been part of the agenda since I became CEO. So so this was not a new kind of concept that, that we wanted to be more diverse as a company, that we felt this was critical uh, to being more successful, to having the best talent, uh, to be able to to make a difference and, and to, to mirror our customers. So we've been on this, this journey. We focused primarily on women initially and made great, we made great progress with representation at all levels of our company, especially in the sales force, which historically have been an area where in, in medical devices, generally uh, women are, are more underrepresented versus other industries. So we've been already talking about this for some time. So when the, when the, the racial uprisings occurred, um, it was something that I felt I had to speak out on, and, and, and I did, and I, and I wrote a note to, to our employees that was fairly raw and talked about that. And I think the fact that we've been talking about this all this time, and it already it wasn't like a new reaction. Uh, but what we did, which was very powerful, was uh, these days of understanding where we had our employee resource groups, which included uh, an African-American resource group. They met and they asked if they could meet just themselves without management, without other people, which we said, fine. And, and they were they were really raw with their feelings and their emotions. They were also actually quite excited to see, to have, be in meetings with only African-Americans. They'd never in their whole life had a meeting with 70, 80, 90, 100 people that were all African-Americans. That, that was a new experience for them. Because even with the previous resource group meetings, there was always a mixture of people. And, and they, they really, uh, they told us some things about our company that were tough to hear, to be honest, about their own experiences. And so what they did initially just on their own, and then they did leadership debriefs with my management team and shared their experiences. They shared some positive things. They shared some very negative things. And, uh, you know, we sort of knew some of these things probably were happening, but to hear it, uh, and they felt very uh, free to speak openly. And I think that was the most powerful part of this uh, this whole situation was I always felt we were I'm an open and transparent leader and that I believe our company's culture is is very open we're a high touch culture we get out and see people but there are these kinds of topics that are not as uh, easy for people to talk about and in our company this opened the door to really creating a, a, a freedom to speak out and speak up that uh, we'd never had before and so I think it was a real catalyst. Uh, and I think the reaction that our employees felt to the way we listened with real sincerity, compassion, and empathy, and the fact that we were going to take this feedback and become better as a result, I think has made us a better company. Um, and so that was really powerful for us to hear. Obviously, I, I'm a person of color myself. I've had my own experiences, um, but frankly, growing up in, in, in Canada, or let's call it America, because Canada's not that different culturally than the United States, because I grew up here, it, it's a little easier than if you were, if I was a first generation immigrant. Uh, but that said, um, it, some of the comments actually resonated with me personally and made me think about my own things that I sort of glossed over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, it was, it, was, uh, it was really powerful and it was important for us to take the, the time with our employees to listen. And I think our culture, which I felt had been pretty open and transparent, is now, uh, you know, two dials of the, two knobs of the dial uh, better and would like it to, to continue in that fashion. What changes have occurred at Stryker? 
So more vibrant uh, employee resource groups and more vibrant support of our employee resource groups. We're just launching uh, ACE. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a launch with the team on Monday, which is for Asians. Uh, at Stryker, we didn't have an Asian uh, resource group. Quite funny since I'm an Asian. But anyways, <laughs> this is one of our last ones to uh, to be creative. But we, we, we have about nine or 10 resource groups, including veterans and, and different um, ethnic backgrounds. But uh, so we're going to launch ACE. But I, I would say powering up the employee resource groups has been a clear outcome from this. We had put a tremendous amount of energy in our in our women's network. But now the other groups are, are feeling much better support, uh, permission to really to engage management. And, um, and I think they'll, they'll become really powerful, a powerful force for good in our company. And then I think recruiting efforts, we had, we'd already sort of launched a, uh, a program around um, racial, you know, recruitment and improvement because we realized we had made improvements in movement, but not so much with people of color. And so we had started that in January enough, the pandemic sort of took things sideways a little bit on recruiting, <laughs> but now we're, we're coming back again. But, but this is going to put more gas on the fire to really uh, amplify those initiatives that we're already starting. And I think we had good credibility because we'd already started the initiatives mm-hmm. prior to these events. But I think we're, we will accelerate those at a faster pace as a result of uh, what's happened. And again, as, as Admin Med Chair, how, how do you feel that the industry, a lot of, a lot of other med techs have stood up, um, many are based in Minneapolis and they've, in Minnesota, and they've made a point of saying we need to be involved with this. Yeah, so when I became uh, Chairman of Admin Med, I put uh, diversity and inclusion on the agenda as a formal uh, platform, which had never been the case. Now, many of our CEOs are very committed to diversity and inclusion. I'm, I'm certainly not the only one. Uh, so there were many others that that uh, were excited about adding this as a formal platform with a formal committee. And so we had done that, I guess, 18 months ago. And so that was already gaining steam. And, and the main reason for doing that was the realization that our industry uh, indexes below other industries in its representation with women and people of color. And there's no good reason for that. And so part of its education, part of its awareness, a lot of people, myself, I didn't know anything about medical devices. It's a career I, I sort of stumbled into uh, by accident. And, and, and so I think we have to market our industry. We wanna raise the water level of the industry by creating a sp- separate focus and a pillar on that. And so we are making good progress and, and this, these circumstances will cause us to even uh, amplify the, that progress. And the, and the final scenario I want to hit upon, I know you need to get going, but it's, it's the, this election, and I think we say this every four years, this election is the, is the worst of them all, but this one has, was, has been particularly divisive, remains particularly divisive. As an institution like Stryker, what role do you have in, in has this election presented challenges to you as a CEO, overseeing a, a, at least part of your employees are, are, are in the States? Um, how difficult has it, has it been to sort of navigate the turmoil created by this election? You know, it hasn't been that challenging, honestly. Um, for whatever reason in our company, the, the belief is that we're there to serve our customers. We have this intense customer focus and that sort of supersedes everything else. And so whether we have Democrats in charge or mm-hmm. Republicans in charge, our goal is to serve our customers. And we believe mm-hmm. in, in fighting for policy not politics. And so we, we advocate on behalf of good policy that will enable our, t- our products to be adopted, that will uh, you know, get them paid and reimbursed 
And so things like the medical device tax. So we, we always talk in terms of policy, not in terms of politics. And as it relates to the pandemic, our, our focus was apolitical. You know, I, I, I did a, one of my early, early talks to all our employees in front of all employees. I said, you know, we're going to mandate that you have to wear masks. If you come to a striker facility, we're going to have masks there. We're going to temperature check you and you're going to have to wear a mask. It, it really, there was no debate about it. And, and I said, this is not a political statement wearing a mask. This is about protecting our employees. Our first priority is protecting our employees. We're going to serve our customers. We have financial discipline. And, and if you come to an office, this is, it's, it's not open for debate. This is how it's going to be because we want to protect you. And, and we really didn't have much in the way of backlash. I know we've heard about certain organizations having challenges and, you know, let's call it fighting amongst employees or, or uh, to be honest, we really, maybe there has been some noise. It has not bubbled up to me. Uh, so the noise level is very, very, very low. And I think that's just because of the way we're, we're wired. We're wired to be intensely customer focused. And those types of things kind of were, were left on the sidelines. Now, I, don't, I did not make political statements myself. I'm not, uh, not prone to do that. Uh, we obviously have Mm-hmm. People that supported the president and people that supported Joe Biden. Clearly, look at the country, right? It was pretty close to, you know, pretty close to even on both sides. And so, you know, our approach is just, you know, let's just, we're a company that's, that's not about taking sides. We're a company that really cares about our customers. That's, that's the focus we've had. And again, on the, on the AdvoMed side, and I know you need to go, uh, were there ever any conversations about making a statement after the election about transition, encouraging this or that? Has that ever been talked about? Yes, we've talked about it. There are, there are other associations that have made statements and comments. And, you know, we, we, uh, we've chosen to be a bit more low-key in that respect for now. And uh, but obviously, we will work with both administrations. And we work, and we've worked very well with, with both sides of the aisle. We, we are an apolitical association, again, focused on policy. So I, that's been the stance that I've taken, and, and we'll be happy to work with the, with the transition team and, and make sure we're, we're already in discussions, obviously, with, with, with both sides, talking about getting vaccines available for our frontline employees that are service, you know, servicing hospitals and many other topics. So we stay active, uh, as we always have, with both sides. But coming out and making statements is not – we typically have been a more of a, a low-key – uh, association, I think we'll stay that way. Final question: Twenty twenty one is nearly here. Uh, what is your? How are you approaching it? What are your feelings for for the new year? So, listen, I'm very excited to be moving uh, past twenty twenty. Uh, but I would tell you that uh, in the short term, those three priorities uh, will stay in effect at least for the first quarter, probably first half of the year. The pandemic isn't hasn't left us. It'll still be with us for the first half of the year. And so we have to keep people safe. Uh, we have to be agile as leaders uh, because as we're seeing right now, flare-ups are occurring everywhere. Uh, hospitalizations are increasing. Procedures are being deferred in many spots. And so this whole uh, ability to be agile, to be ready to serve the customers when they're ready, uh, but be able to support them and and scaling up and scaling down. So I think we'll continue to live in this a little bit uncertain world for for a while. But you can see the light at the end of the tunnel is coming, which is really exciting. And uh, the worst, we're not going to go back, to, uh, very unlikely that we'd go back to the April complete broad scale shutdowns, uh, mm-hmm. although there, there will be regionalized, localized events that occur. So it's, it's really sort of getting back to, uh, to business in, in a better way. I'm, I can't wait to get back and see, see more of our employees 
uh, you know, this, this high touch culture of ours needs, you need to see people. And while virtual has proven to be very effective, more effective than I could have thought, it does not replace personal contact. And especially uh, people who are far away in other countries, being able to go and visit them and spend time with them and spend time with their, with their customers is something I'm looking forward to, probably not in the first four months of the year, but um, as the year unfolds. So I'm very excited for 2021 to, to arrive. Excellent. Well, I appreciate the, the time and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. All right, and we're back. It's a great conversation with Kevin Lobo. Thanks, Kevin Lobo, for uh, joining us on the podcast. And once again, you can find my article about that on medical design and outsourcing, which will be coming out in January, but also will be uh, available online prior to that. So please keep an eye out for that. Now let's uh, share some social media information. You can uh, you can actually connect with our publications. Medical design and outsourcing is on Twitter at meddesignoutsourcing at medtechdaily and Matt Mass Device is at Mass Device, and you can find us individually there as well. Sean Hooley, what is your social media info? You can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, Sean, S-E-A-N-W-H-O-O-L-E-Y-W-T-W-H. That is my Twitter handle. And then Sean, S-E-A-N-W-H-O-O-L-E-Y on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to connect. And Nancy Crotty, this will be your first time sharing your info. How can folks find you on Twitter and LinkedIn? On Twitter, I'm at N Crotty, N C R O T T I. And on LinkedIn, uh, just my full name, Nancy, N A N C Y Crotty, C R O T T I. And I am on Twitter at MedTechTom, also on LinkedIn under Tom Salemi. Be great to uh, connect with folks. So we're always trying to uh, broaden our networks into the medical device industry. And uh, if you do share this podcast, which we would very much love you to do, Please, uh, please add our information on there. We'd love to be part of that conversation. And once again, we make this uh, plea every time, but uh, please do subscribe to this podcast. It, that ensures that you'll see these podcasts as soon as they come out. We are planning to put out our final podcast of the year next week. So that'll be the final Friday that we'll put it out. We'll take Christmas off and then we'll have a podcast that'll come out the week in between. That'll be sort of uh, the best of variety. So it'll be a quality podcast as always, you don't want to miss it. So just uh, push the subscribe button on your podcast player. That way you will not miss a future episode. Well, Sean and Nancy, thanks for uh, for filling in so well for, uh, for Chris Newmarker. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And uh, thanks everyone out there for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. That is it.